Hello, listeners. Thank you for choosing to listen to Dialogues with Creators. I don't take it for granted that you've made this choice, since there are lots of other podcasts, to say the least, that you could listen to. Thousands upon thousands. You can consider this a commercial. Actually, it's a commercial asking for commercials. I would like to keep doing this podcast, but there are expenses. So if you have a business and would like to sponsor us, please contact me through my website, barbaragrahamtucker.com. Also, we are now on YouTube if you prefer to listen that way. You can find us, but you'll need to put in the words Dialogues with Creators Podcast Barbara Tucker. There's no visual yet. It's still just audio. I'm not quite ready for the visual. Next thing, as some of you know, my eighth novel dropped on June 1st. Sudden Future is a story of grief, growth, and grace. How do you like that alliteration? Seriously, it's a human story with humor, tears, and plot twists. It's perfect for book groups, and it is available from Colorful Crow Publishing website through me personally, and it's probably the best way, and through the usual suspects of online book dealers. Finally, please let me know if you have a guest that you think would be good for this podcast and write us a review on whatever platform you use. Thank you for listening. We modern Americans take it for granted that somebody keeps the records. We have libraries that house books and the internet to house all kinds of information. But what about museums? Museums don't just house items and artifacts and hold on to them. They find them, restore them, make sense of them, put them in order and explain them to us. If you think of museums as stuffy places with old pictures on the walls, and I doubt you listeners do, but some people do feel that way. Hold on as we listen to a real curator describe his work and how creativity fits into it. Our guest on Dialogues with Creators today is Dr. Adam Ware of the Bandy Heritage Center. And we are going to learn a lot about the region and its history, as well as the center and its mission and work. Dr. Adam Ware is the director of the Bandy Heritage Center and BJ and Dixie Bandy Chair of American History. Welcome to our episode, Dr. Ware. Thank you. Happy to be here. You have a varied educational background. You <laughs> earned a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a Master's Degree of Religion, and then your PhD from Florida State University is in Religious History. So how did that happen? How do all these work together for you? <laughs> it was, you know, it was a long way. And I think, you know, arriving at the directorship of the Bandy Center, I feel like I, um, I kind of carved my way through the bush with a machete a little bit. But when I started, so I'm a first generation college student and I did or college graduate and I didn't have a lot of familial support in terms of understanding, picking a major or understanding what kind of path, what, you know, based on what I wanted to wind up doing, I didn't really understand the means of how to get there. 
And I started college thinking that I wanted to double major in international business and German, and I wanted to translate. And I took one business class and realized that that was not the past for me. Um, <laughs> and so I started looking into counseling therapy and I was really interested in being a counselor. And I had to design an experiment for an undergraduate research methods course, and I designed it around uh, perceiving meanings in music and popular music and submitted it to my my professor and the program at the University of Georgia is a bachelor's of science in psychology. It's not a bachelor of arts in psychology. And so there's a lot of heavy weight put on cognitive research and testing and the more quantitative side of things. And so when I submitted this research proposal, their response was, we don't really do that here. This isn't really the place for that. And maybe you should look at um you know, taking a class in English literature or religion. So I picked up minors in religion and English lit. And at that time, I shifted back to an old passion of mine, which is the uh, the work of William Blake. I'm, I'm a big fan of British romantics. And one of the things that really interested me about Blake was the way he interrelates text and images and that the meanings that you derive from his work aren't really about the text describing the images, nor are they about the images illustrating the text, but that there's something more synthetic going on there. And in the English department, they were only really interested in studying Blake in the context of his historical contemporaries. So people who were responding to the French Revolution. And I wasn't really interested in that. I was really interested in comparing Blake to other creatives of his caliber. And so comparing him to Dante or to Michelangelo, and they weren't really doing that in the English department. So I took a class on religion and literature and, you know, going into it again, first generation college student at the time, not really familiar with the academic study of religion at all. And I'm thinking, okay, so religion and literature, that's like the Bible, right? (laughs) And I get into the class and the professor begins with the the sort of organizing thesis or the question for the course, which was, uh, what are the circumstances under which the self meets the other? And I thought, I have no idea what that means. And I was hooked. And it turned out that um, we read some Joseph Conrad and we read some Native American poetry and we read A River Runs Through It. And it was a really interesting combination of stuff. And by the end of that class, I thought, I want to do religion and literature. This is a way to do the kind of literary analysis I want to do, but it's focused on habits of meaning making and memory and identity sharing and identity construction. And so I entered the master's program at UGA and within short order, I found that my definition for literature didn't really fit what was being described at the time in religion and literature as a, as a subfield. And so I found myself interested in performative literatures, so dance and theater. And I was interested in material literatures, so manufacturing history and the relationship of manufacturing material objects to the construction of memory, to the uh, management of affect and emotion. So I was in all these little fields. And so I transitioned from there to religion and media culture. And then when I got to Florida State, I added on the toolkit of the historian, because up until that point, I was really a culture theorist more than anything. Mm -hmm. And 
at at Florida State, I picked up those tools of the historian and I really became fascinated with the intersection of media culture and material history and the production and management of collective affect and how people share feelings and how they share what we call meta affect. So how people feel about how they feel. And these are all the domains of religious behaviors. So I wasn't studying religions in the conventional sense. I was studying how people behave religiously. And you can you can start to see at that point that the interest in media and material culture and collective memory is a, is a site that's ripe for inquiry when you talk about museums, because museums are institutions that manage collective memory and they deal with material culture and they participate in the creation and the sharing and dissemination of meaning. And so I started studying museums as my, my secondary research area was museum studies. And so I was interested in the work of museums, but I was also interested in museums as a site of study, that this was a thing we should, you know, we shouldn't accept as natural the behaviors of museums. And that as we as we start to develop new or better ideas about how memory functions, we can apply those in museums and archives. And so I found myself as in a really odd position where my intellectual colleagues weren't wanting to apply their work in museums and my applied colleagues, my museum professional friends weren't really interested in the theory underlying what they were doing. Mm. And so I, you know, from there I wound up uh, in the field and it's, it's been a process of, of having built a theoretical body of work and now we're applying it in the shaping of Northwest Georgia memory. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's a, that is so much to, to take in, but it's fascinating because I think that most people who are not aware of the museum process or whatever in the museum culture would think, okay, somebody just wants to honor something, you know, an artist or a region or a phenomenon. And so we're going to have a building and have everything that has to do with them. We're going to put it up and it's going to look nice and people can come and look at it <laughs> as far as there being a theoretical foundation for it and mm -hmm. what it is culturally for people's creation of their identity and their, their meaning. Yeah. And the Bandy center is my understanding the first institution of its type, right. In this area. For Northwest Georgia, it is. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there are like you can go down to near Calhoun and there's there's the the place of uh, I think it's Etowah for the Cherokee. And then you've got there was a a building that was a museum for Fort Oglethorpe, some of the military that was there. Right. And then, of course, you've got the museum at the the Chickamauga battlefield. Mm -hmm. And those are. It, it, well, in, in some cases, there the government would have been behind it, I suppose. But why somebody would do that for the whole region to honor and to I'm trying to think of the word to to build a sense of of meaning, I guess, maybe and, and a sense of what we do here is unique. And it is a value. It is it is honorable. 
You know, it's not just, hey, we make some carpets because these ladies made tufted bedspreads, you know, (laughs) or or something like that. You know, that it's that that material culture comes from more than just what what was available. The 41 went through and people put out, you know, the story you always hear. They put out the tufted bed spreads and wasn't that nice as old ladies made money off of it (laughs) that there's so much more to it and that really all the things that we might think are kind of historical and maybe a little bit more elitist and everything they all kind of started that way too Mm -hmm. you know as material culture for survival and just to this is part of who we are sure am i making sense (laughs) and i I think the word the word you were grasping for the word i use you know you you talked about you know whether we honor things or whether we you know celebrate things um i find that the 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 most academically responsible word is that we interpret these things and Uh, that's a way of assessing them without uh conferring a value on them because right Mm-hmm. You run into some tricky problems if if your responsibility is to honor a phenomenon and then it turns out that there are components of that phenomenon that aren't that, that honoring is not really the appropriate response. Yes. Yes. And there are there are so many different kinds of, of sites like that. And honorifics are, you know, Chickamauga being in our region, I think, is a big part of it that you know, Chickamauga is America's first battlefield park and our first national battlefield park. Mm-hmm. And the you know one of the things that really interested me and one of the the scholars that I worked with was a, a man named Ed Lenenthal at the University of Indiana. We we talked frequently about how the language of religiosity starts to seep into the way Americans in particular remember historic events, and so we talk about spaces like Chickamauga Battlefield as being sacred ground. Well, what do we mean we, when we call these things sacred? Well, they're set apart, and they're set apart because we decided to set them apart, and so there's a lot of human decisions and human behaviors that we can chronicle. And I think the, the, you know, to your point about the bedspreads, the thing that interests me so much about material culture and material history is that humans are finite in space and time, right? I'm here and now, and I'm not there and then, and I only have so many hours in the day. And so the things that I choose to make and share with my time reflect intimately on my values and my priorities. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the things that a community makes and shares, we can reverse engineer the, those processes and we can learn a lot about what a community values, whether it's, you know, um, capital capital enrichment or lifting a community out, out of economic depression, or maybe they're decorative objects and they're about beauty and aesthetics, or maybe they're about defense or it could be any number of things, mm-hmm. but and we, we can only choose to do so much. And so material history becomes a way to, to reflect how, you know, how a community spends its time is really about its values and its yes. priorities. And so it's, it's a ripe way for us to, to listen to people and to hear what people are saying. But at the same time, I think as critics, it's not our responsibility to take our narrators at their word. And so by looking at the material record, the material record speaks to us in a way that its creators don't necessarily, because you may say that you're doing something for a particular reason, but what actually shows in the product may reflect a different set of priorities. And that those kinds of triangulations really fascinate me. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I like that word interpret. Thank you. Although I would I would wonder, though, if maybe the impetus of the people who get the idea to have a curated 
place, a collection that there isn't a, like you say, with the, the battlefield, there is a sense of taking it to a higher level than just the cognitive or the intellectual, that they do want to honor it. They do want to call it sacred. You know. Sure. Yeah. And that's that's something that I think, you know, we wind up, uh, you know, I, the phrase I use is we wind up being the fun police a little bit because, you know, because we are a part of Dalton State College and our responsibility is to academic rigor and to the care of the collection. And so there are things that are worth celebrating. There are things that are worth mm-hmm. honoring, but there are other things that the response might be to mourn or merely mm-hmm. to remember. And so uh, the word interpret leaves us um, an amount of space where we can do uh, those kinds of things. But I think the, the really the only significance that we confer on the collection as the Bandy Center is not to say that this is worthy of honor or that this is worthy of condemnation, but that this is worthy of preservation and study. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a, that is a kind of elevation, but I, I think it stops short of a sanctification. Right. These kinds of yeah. things. It, it allows us it allows us to provide that opportunity to the community, but it also allows us to provide opportunities to scholars or people who might have other other goals when they look at the, the history of this region. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, going back to your background, uh, we got we, we kind of look at took a detour there, but that was a very interesting detour. <laughs> your dissertation was titled. Now, you've already been in psych and religious history, media studies, and I said religion and history. And and one thing about getting your PhD in history, did was that a, a stretch because your back your other degrees were not in history? Well, no, my, my degree is actually in religion, but the, the specialty is American religious history. Oh, I see. So, OK, so that, my, that my two specialty, the degree, what's written on the paper is religion, but the specialties were American religious history with emphasis in museum studies. Ah, OK. Anyway, back to your dissertation, it was titled Dreaming of a Hillbilly Heaven, Religion, Emotion and American Country Music, 1925 to 1954. Now, first thing I want to say is that is that is a great title for Mm -hmm. dissertation. My dissertation title has no poetry whatsoever in it, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it was more in the social sciences. So so you must have an interest in music as well. Yes, I grew up in a in a musical house, and we, you know, we used to joke in the religion department that the same way that I was talking about material history, and you can learn about somebody's values based on what they make. You know, the field of religious studies is not. It's a very elective field and nobody just winds up in it the way you might wind up in, you know, a, a college of any size is likely to have an English department or a history department or a chemistry department. And they may not necessarily have a religion department. And so to wind up in that department takes a different level of effort, not a better level of effort, but it, you just right. it, you don't just wind up there. And so we used to joke that you could learn a lot about somebody in the field based on what they chose to study. And so the fact that I grew up in a musical house, um, you know, my, my grandparents were in gospel groups and, you know, I was, you know, as an adolescent, you know, adolescence is all about rebellion and my parents both had very great taste in music. And so it was a very hard place to rebel when your parents already have a good taste in music. So my, you know, my dad raised me on the grateful dead and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And my mother raised me on Diana Ross and Smokey Robinson. And, and, and um, so I grew up in a house that was, you know, when we talk about one of the definitions I used to use when I would teach was that religion is 
is about how you reveal to yourself what your ultimate concern is. And in our family, it was clear that music was a way of accessing those those greatest priorities. But as I started trying to put together a dissertation, you know, I had I had written a lot about new media technologies. One of the things that always interested me in communications media is the whenever there's a new media technology developed, it always is first and foremost put to a conventionally religious purpose. And that always fascinated me about why that is and what that has to do with the Protestant temperament and things like that. So, you know, the movable type printing press is invented to create the Bible. Uh, the first book printed in the new world is the Massachusetts Bay book of Psalms. The first message transmitted across the transatlantic telegraph cable is look at what God hath wrought. Yeah. Uh, the first woman granted a broadcasting license by the FCC was a Pentecost hostile minister and on and on. And so I had written all these things about much earlier forms of media, but I was also really interested in performance of gender and performances of queerness in seventies rock and roll. So I'd written a lot about David Bowie and people like that. But as I was talking with my dissertation director, you know, neither of those seemed like a place where I really wanted to dive in. And, um, his response was, well, have you thought about writing about folk music during the depression? And I had not. And so as I started diving in, what I found, and this turned out to be the content of the dissertation, was the dissertation tracks the role of Appalachian Protestant affective norms. So attitudes toward performing emotion and interpreting emotion and how those Appalachian Protestant affective norms contributed to the commercial development of the country music recording industry. And so... You know, how how is it that, for instance, when people are defending the you know, when when country music or what was known at that time, hillbilly music first started, the concerns about it were about emotional intemperance. So people would say, oh, this this bluegrass music, it's 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 rambunctious, it's cantankerous, it makes me feel inappropriate things. And George Hay, who was the. um the leader of the Grand Ole Opry, what was known at the time as the WSM Barn Dance, uh, defended it by saying it might be a riot, but it's a good natured riot. And the thing that fascinated me was he didn't have to explain what he meant when he said it was good natured. And the more I thought about that, the less sense it made. Like, what does it mean to be good natured? What does it mean to be wholesome? And so these emotional complexes of wholesomeness and good naturedness, they made a lot of people a lot of money uh, in the country music recording industry. And so how do you commercialize affect? How do you commercialize a feeling? And that really fascinated me that what emerged through the Depression was what I called an affective industrial complex that performing a certain feeling became tremendously popular in the depression. And of course the, the musicians out of Appalachia are singing from historically depressed places. Mm -hmm. And then when the depression hits people in places like New York and Boston and Chicago, suddenly they're experiencing economic depression. And what, what the country music industry did was they were able to mate economic depression to spiritual depression and they were able to solve your spiritual depression. And by buying records, you solved their economic depression. <laughs> and you know, that it, it really fascinated me that, that what you started to see was a kind of better felt than said popular theology. So uh, when the Carter family records, there's no depression in heaven, 
you know, what they're saying to you, the most important thing you need to know about heaven in this case is not that there's streets paved with gold and not that you'll see your grandma again, not that you'll be on a cloud playing a liar, but that heaven is a place where you won't be depressed anymore. And I thought that was really profound. And the so the story you know, begins with the development of the, the Opry and the commercial standardization of the 78 RPM record. Well, when you standardize that playback format, the cost drops and more people can make records. Well, who starts making records? Uh, ministers start making records. And you start seeing these really weird material artifacts where there's an ad in a Chicago newspaper that advertises audio recordings of natural body baptisms. So like river baptisms. And like for the life of me, I couldn't understand what the appeal would be of listening to someone get baptized in a river. Right. That's a very bodily experience. I don't understand what you get from listening to it. And in the advertisement, it says feel better by having this record in your home. So there's a material affective component that having this record is going to change your feelings. But then by the end of my my periodization for my disc, it ended with Hank Williams being fired from the Grand Old Opry. And then later with the, the record signings of Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. But by the time that that Hank Williams was fired from the Opry, you start to see this, this affective industrial system has been codified so that when he gets fired, he gets fired for industrial reasons and affective reasons, right? At heart, he gets fired because he's a drunk. Well, the problem with him being a drunk is that he's not meeting his contractual obligations, which is an industrial problem. And people don't want to hear him on the radio, which is an affective problem. Mm -hmm. And so this, this thing that seems so ephemeral or nebulous starts to have real effects on the industry and real effects on people's careers and lives. And then the final step in that process was studying how that era was interpreted at the country music hall of fame and museum in Nashville. Oh. So you start to see all these weird little dog whistles. So the motto of the, you know, the way you might study white privilege or male privilege, a lot of what I was studying was Protestant privilege. So what are the things that Protestants don't have to explain by virtue of being a predominant culture? So the Country Music Hall of Fame's motto is honor thy music which is a phrase that really makes a little more sense if you're familiar with biblical tradition. Mm -hmm. During the time that I was going up there to do research, they were doing a capital campaign to expand the building and they were playing music from speakers out over the pavilion in front of the building. And they were playing an old gospel song called working on a building. And the point was that they are working on their building and you could donate money. But the lyrics of that song are I'm working on a building. It's a Holy Ghost building. And I was really fascinated that country music is ostensibly secular. It's ostensibly capitalist. And yet they don't have to explain the relationship of this gospel song to what they're doing. And there's it's just all over the Hall of Fame that that it all just has it all just makes a little more sense if you already bring to it a certain participation in a religious culture of feeling. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah. and that's the, that's the, the long and the short of how I wound up there. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a little older than you and I, I grew up with my mother uh, playing Hank Williams and 
um, not knowing the story behind him, you know, as far as how he died and everything, which is so sad. But um, listening to, you know, watching Hee Haw, that was. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, in the early 60s and uh, growing up on that stuff. And uh, we always would laugh about how the there always be a gospel song at the end of Hee Haw. You know, which I think shows you it's like it's assumed there's going to be it's assumed that Elvis is going to have a gospel album. You know, it was even assumed before Johnny Cash really became more converted because than he originally was that he was going to sing because of his wife and other things, even though. In his personal life, he was not exactly um, a choir boy, you might say, some of the things he did or or Elvis. But um, (laughs) we would laugh because Hee Haw would show they'd have these these girls in tight little short shorts, you know, just hanging around looking sexy. And at the end, they'd have they'd have gospel song. You they know? bring it back. They bring it back home. Yeah. Yeah. They bring it back home. You know, so that's sort of a a superficial uh, version of what you're talking about. I think, you know, that or if you've ever been to the the Opry to, to you know, there's always going to be a gospel portion of that along with the honky tonk, you know, so it's sort of, yeah, we know these things exist. We know there's the drinking and all that stuff and the, the womanizing. But we're going to come back to the Bible here and get it right. Yes. <laughs> and that's one of the things that's one of the things that George Hay would say to defend the Opry was, you know, he was famous for saying these people have feelings on Saturday night, but they have feelings on Sunday morning. too. Yeah. <laughs> and he, again, he didn't have to explain that. But, you know, your point about about Johnny Cash marrying June, June Carter. One of the strangest things I came across in that research was uh, the life and career of a guy named John Romulus Brinkley. And John Romulus Brinkley was a doctor in Kansas who had run for governor of Kansas. Um, he was early and an early adopter of radio technology and he would advertise his medical services on his own radio station. Well, his, his surgery, he was a quack. There's actually a really great book about it called charlatan and, um, his surgeries were male impotence therapies. And Oh yes. I've heard of this guy. Yes. He, after he was removed from Kansas, he set up a radio station in uh, Del Rio, Texas. And his radio tower was just across the river in Via Acuna, Mexico. Well, because it's across the river, it's out of the FCC's jurisdiction. And so at a time when the wattage limit was 50,000 watts, he was running a 500,000 watt radio transmitter out of Mexico. Mexico and was broadcasting around the clock. And there were reports of people picking it up in their dental fillings and picking it up in metal fence posts. But he would he would couch this therapy in religious language. So he would say that he would give you a resurrection like unto Lazarus and (laughs) to make himself this. This kind of goes back to the commodification of wholesomeness to give himself this veneer of wholesomeness. He hired the Carter family at a time when AP was divorcing from uh, from Sarah. And there's a really great interview with June Carter where she says, you know, they went down there and performed in the winter when they weren't touring. And when she first met John Brinkley, that he was wearing a white linen Panama suit and had a monkey on his shoulder. So I can just imagine this, the, the weirdness. But his whole point was just by having the Carters play it absolved him of any kind of moral you know, impropriety. I think that's, oh, yeah. that's profound. Yeah. The music covers it all. Mm-hmm. So that makes the honor of the music make sense. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's fascinating. So anyway, I, the, 
the uh, title Dreaming of a Hillbilly Heaven. Boy, that's that's a great title for a dissertation. So I'm fascinated with all these threads. And you worked in curating collections before you came back to Dalton, though. Right. And we'll yes. talk about Dalton in a minute. Yeah. So while I was finishing my dissertation, I accepted a position at the Orange County Regional History Center, which is a Smithsonian oh. affiliate in Orlando. Oh, okay. and there I was a historian and research librarian over the uh, Joseph L. Breckner Research Center, which is at the, his- the Orange County Regional History Center. And you know, when I accepted that position, yeah, you know, I've kind of I've kind of fallen backwards through my career. And so when I accepted that position, I thought, OK, Central Florida history, like Disney World, right? Like, <laughs> oh, don't say that to the locals. My well, goodness. Now, yeah, the world has changed 100 times over since then. But but what really fascinated me was, you know, Disney had already shown up a lot in my work when we talk about tourism as pilgrimage. And, um, yeah, you know, it's not exactly holy, but it might be it might be sacred to a lot of people. And, um, so I got down there and, you know, what really fascinated me was the history center collects seven counties. And so we collected Disney, uh, what was known at the time as the Florida project when Walt Disney was first getting started. Um, but we also collected, um, Daytona International Speedway. Uh, we collected the Space Coast at Cape Canaveral, uh, the Plant City Strawberry Festival. And then, of course, the big kid in the middle of the room was the Florida citrus industry. Mm-hmm. And working to grow those collections and working with communities that historically had not seen themselves represented in archives. I used to joke that if you ever met a second generation Orlando and you should put them in a museum because nobody's <laughs> from Orlando. Everybody right, right. to Orlando. And as I would talk to some of the the older generations, they always brought up a statistic that I thought was really compelling, which was that in 1970, the year before the Magic Kingdom opened, Orlando had 50,000 people. And now it's 4.9 million or so. So a lot of their history is recent history. But their point about the 50,000 people was that they would say this was a small town and we're number one in the world for this strange product that nobody else makes, which was oranges, tangelos, grapefruits, what have you. And the more I thought about that, I, I, I had a natural affinity because I grew up in a small town that was number one in the world for a weird product right. that nobody yeah. else made. Yeah. Um, and so kind of the whole time I was down there, I kept thinking, you know, it, it was it was a really well run operation. And I kept thinking, I wish someone would do the kind of memory management work for Northwest Georgia that we're doing here. My partner got uh, one of her degrees is from Georgia State and she got an email on the listserv one night. We were sitting at her apartment. She was the curator of exhibits at the museum. And so I described I was the farmer and she was the chef. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, I think Dalton's hiring a museum director. And I said, well, there's a lot of history in Dalton, but I don't think anybody's hiring a museum director. And she said, Dalton State College. And I said, yeah, that's where my parents met in 1973. And um, she said the the Bandy Heritage Center. And at that point, she had me and my 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 wife is not from here. But I immediately turned my head and I said, like Jack Bandy. <laughs> and um Coming up for the 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 interview was a really a really fun experience because it was something going into that field I never thought I'd come home again. So for the past five years we've been we've been building a, a record of community life, you know that that hadn't really existed before. Mm-hmm. 
That's that's an interesting story. And yeah, I bet I bet working in Orlando would have been fascinating. Again, I'm old enough to remember watching the Walt Disney show on Sunday nights back in the 60s and him talking about what they were going to do in in Florida, you know, and and of course, we wouldn't have as a child, I wouldn't have understood the scope of it. And I went there the first time in 1974. So I went early before it was really done, I think. And I didn't go back into <laughs> it for like 30 years. <laughs> I didn't go back. I wasn't. It was it's hot. I'm not a, I'm not a Florida person. Yeah. <laughs> if it's my vacation, I'm going north. I'm going someplace cold. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, I've only my son's only been to Disney World once. <laughs> and he was he was 12 at the time, so it really wasn't a, a thing. Yeah, but I, I I talked to people who were from Florida and they say pre-Disney, you know, and they're very, mm-hmm. very like proud of it. And, you know, our, our exhibit at the our exhibit at the museum about Disney was actually called The Day We Changed. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you're a graduate of Dalton High. Yes, I am. Class of 2000. Oh, okay, okay. So you've kind of alluded to this, but how does being a a local (laughs) connect with your work at the Heritage Center? You know, on a certain level, it shouldn't. And there's a you know there's a theoretical level and a practical level, but you, you shouldn't have to be local to study local right. history. Um, the analogy that I always use is that you shouldn't have to be a bug to study entomology, um, <laughs> because it's it's not it's not a way to to develop any kind of body of knowledge that is that is transmissible that is communicable to other people if it's if it's mm-hmm. purely insider knowledge for insider's sake. That said. I think Northwest Georgia communities are distinctive in a certain way that when you're creating an archives now running an archives might be a different story, but I think when you're trying to explain to a community how this works to kind of turn a mirror back on this community and its values, it definitely helps to have an informal memory of the place and to have some basic command of names and family names and events and things like that. And so on, you know, categorically it shouldn't help, but it absolutely does. And I think there are doors that open because I'm local and, and local with deep roots. You know, I didn't, I didn't really get into genealogy until I got into this field. And so I didn't know until I, until I got to Orlando, actually, you can only help other people with their genealogy so much before you get the bug. You want to do your own and come to find out that my family has been in Northwest Georgia uh, for six generations. Mm. And that even in a place with, you know, where things change as slowly as they do here, um, there aren't a ton of sixth generation natives around and my my family's been um outside of ringgold um since about 1828 Mm. and so uh, i i do this work as an academic and as a professional but i also have a personal stake in seeing these stories preserved and and you know the the way we respect the people of the past is by respecting the complexity of their world and so it's Mm -hmm. it's an opportunity to do a to do a service even as i'm doing my job Mm mm-hmm and, you know, I'm going to I'm going to read the mission of the Bandy Center here. And and before I say that, I want to I want to say that, you know, my my roots are Appalachian and Virginia. And I the thing that I think that people tend to, to look at a region they don't know and, and see it as being very homogeneous, mm-hmm. you know, 
and and don't realize that that that's not not correct. Right. And and that kind of comes through in your mission, which is to collect, preserve and interpret the material and cultural histories of Northwest Georgia's many communities. Mm-hmm. And I like that because there are many communities. There's obviously the we think of the people who have been here for a long time, who maybe are the the more elite types, the names we recognize. There would be those who are maybe have more in the religious community, maybe it's those who are in the industrial and those who are in the immigrant community. Sure. Um, and then, of course, there's going to be sub communities of those who are into maybe music or or something else. So I like that. And then the vision is through archival collection, artifact preservation, museum exhibitions, scholarly research, and heritage programming, the Bandy Heritage Center for Northwest Georgia strives to ignite curiosity about the past, spark conversation in the present, and inspire the leaders of the future, all while articulating a compelling vision for community identity and memory. Did you write that? I did. I, did. Okay. <laughs> I wrote them both. Um, you know, I, I think a lot in terms of and this comes back from from a background in teaching religion. But I always think mm-hmm. in terms of awkward consequences when we establish definitions that if we're going to if we're going to define a category or a phenomenon, we have to we have to use language that is going to account for the most awkward consequences within a field, the most, the most, yeah. most odd typologies. And so if, you know, the the original mission for the Bandy Heritage Center was celebrating the history of Northwest Georgia, which sounds awesome. Who doesn't want to celebrate the history of Northwest Georgia? But there's a lot in in human history and certainly in Northwest Georgia history right. where celebration is not the appropriate response. But if our mission is celebrating, then it means we are we are falling afoul of our mission to do anything other than celebrate. Mm-hmm. How do you celebrate slavery? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you celebrate sexism? You know, how do you celebrate uh, exploitation of labor? You know, there's, there's all these other things. And I just don't know that that's, that's the right way. And so in, in writing that mission and that vision, how can we, how can we create a mission that is going to allow us to go into any corner or to go to lift right. any stone? Yeah. And that was, that was kind of the goal was that, this is for Northwest Georgia. And so you don't want any Northwest Georgian to feel like this is not their heritage center. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I can see where the word celebration could be problematic (laughs) for what you're doing. So can you bring that down to what somebody is going to find there? Sure. They go as you, let me say, as you know, I bring my, my first year students there just uh, on a little tour I do of the campus is sort of the places you don't know about. And and I want them to know that if they're interested in history, there's a place they can, they can come or they could do an internship or something. And, and I don't know, it's, it's more of a secondary thing. It's not so much that I expect them to do that as they, They need to know that that Dalton State is more than just a parking lot and some buildings, you know, where they go and get some credits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because, you know, a lot of the freshmen are like, I'm going to transfer, which they don't. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I want them to see this is a lot more than what you think it is. Mm -hmm. 
as a place. Yeah. As a bandy center is is a great connection point for the community that way. I described the bandy center as having one foot on campus and one foot in the community. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's familiar with the geography and the topography of Dalton in particular, Dalton State is on the west side of the interstate. And so there's an informal, you know, since 1963, there's been this kind of informal mentality in town that Dalton is over here and Dalton College is over there. And the interstate is this kind of dividing line. And so what I love about the bandy center is that it gives it gives the college and any faculty that want to draw on our resources and the administration it gives us an opportunity to reach the community in a way that you know, I think a lot of times we think about, okay, well, how do we interact with the community? Well, if they enroll in our classes, then they're a student. But there are a lot of ways that this college serves its community beyond just enrollment or beyond just classroom instruction. And so this is this is really an interesting beachhead for that. But when people come to the center, our main offices are here uh, on the first floor of the Daryl Roberts Library here at Dalton State. And to draw down that mission and that vision into practical terms. So we collect material history and that falls for us into four main categories of material that you'll find in the archives. Uh, the first of those is audiovisual material. So photographs, slides, negatives, um, LPs, which tying back to my, my dissertation research, um, Northwest Georgia has a long gospel recording history. And so we collect records from small churches that had a little gospel quartet that recorded an album in the sixties. So, you know, Slides, negatives, photos, audio, VHS cassettes, that all falls under audiovisual media. Um, The second category is documents and paper records. And that's a very broad category, almost too broad to to put your arms around without putting it in concrete terms. But that includes everything from real estate records and deeds and plat maps to high school yearbooks to cookbooks, um, letters and correspondence, business records, civic and organizational records. It, it varies wi- widely, maps and atlases, I may have mentioned. And those first two categories are by and large of high research value. But the third category, uh, artifacts and objects, is typically a, we collect for its high exhibition value. So artifacts and objects are typically what you would expect to see in a museum. You know, when people come in to see the archives, I think they expect it to look like, um, you know, there, there was an era in DC comics when Batman uh, kept souvenirs from his villains in the Batcave. So you'd see like, you know, something from the Joker or something from Two-Face. And I think people expect that when they come into the archives and it's all boxes of paper. <laughs> I think it's a little underwhelming, but the, the artifacts are just as broad of a category including everything from tools and equipment from the carpet industry, um, military and school uniforms, athletic equipment, um, letterman jackets, to a much lesser degree, um, Cherokee and indigenous material. And part of the reason for that is there's a federal statute called NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Uh, So we don't focus uh, to a great extent on Cherokee history, because if we want to interpret Cherokee history, we'll do that in in collaboration with the Cherokee Nation. Mm hmm. Um, and then the fourth category would be uh, oral histories. So we conduct transcribe oral histories. And so when you when you 
you know, to the to the question, what would you expect to find when you come here? We have a reading room for research access to use the collection. We have a preservation lab um, for cleaning, organizing, housing, describing, managing the material itself. And because we are a part of Dalton State, that lab is also a teaching lab. The work here is historical work, but I think the practices aren't necessarily the practices of a historian. And so it's important for students to know that if you have a photograph, say, of Dalton College, well, knowing the history of Dalton College is one field of knowledge, but knowing how to preserve the emulsion on that photograph is a different field of knowledge. And so we're, we kind of we kind of do both at the same time here. We have a small hallway gallery uh, where we uh, can turn around exhibits, just new new things into the collection. And then we have archival storage and we are we are uh, Northwest Georgia's only uh, cold storage. So, the you know, I think one of the things that makes a difference for us vis-a-vis other historical efforts in the region is our ability to apply the science of preservation um, and to account for the longevity and the security mm-hmm. of the material. Yeah. yeah um, and considering all the things you you get is is everything that the the Heritage Center owns in that building or is there another? No, we, we do. We right now we have three sites and we're, we're kind of okay. built, you know, knowing that Dalton State is is tucked up against Rocky Face Ridge. There's not a whole right. lot of opportunity for major construction projects. Right. And so we have a three three facility uh, model. So what's what's here on campus is mainly for research and preservation. We also have uh, exhibition space downtown in Dalton's historic 1911 freight depot, where right now we have a display of Chanel bedspreads, which is I describe it as Dalton 101. So it's a it's a great way for people who are unfamiliar with Dalton to see um, some of that Chanel history. And then we also have uh, offsite storage because, you know, some of the especially when it comes to artifacts, most of what we store on campus are photos and documents and our research library. But there are some artifacts that are quite large. Um, some carpet right. manufacturing equipment or yeah. certain automobiles of historic significance. We, we want to have mm-hmm. a place if those get offered to us, we want to have a place for those to land. Right. When you mentioned that, I thought, OK, I know they don't have carpet industry machines in that building <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at the library. So, OK. And, and this is in the vicinity of Dalton, but it's cold storage. Right. Well, what the cold storage is actually here on campus. Um, okay. The, the other storage is climate controlled. Um, artifacts tend to fare a lot better um, under typical residential conditions. So 70 mm-hmm. degrees, 50 percent humidity. Okay. Um, but a lot of what we have here, especially photographic negatives and some of those more fragile materials need a much colder, drier environment um, to last. Okay. So on a daily basis, what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) What is it you really do, Adam? Sure. You know, Uh, you go in uh, in the morning with your coffee and what do you do? So at this point, um, you know, one of the jokes that that we shared right as the pandemic hit was right around the time we moved into this facility. So the the facility here on campus is new since 2018. And um, one of the jokes that that we shared was... um, we knew we had become a real archive once we had backlog. 
<laughs> and then, uh, so, you know, I think on, you know, in the immediate sense on the, on a day-to-day basis, a lot of what we do is processing collections that have come in. So that involves assessing what a donor has offered to see if it's something we need, if it tells a story that we haven't been able to tell before, if it's something that we're capable of caring for. And okay. then once we determine that something is appropriate for the collection, we begin a process that is called accessioning. And that involves the cataloging, the photographing, the description, the assessment, um, the housing. So, you know, making sure that a collect that a, a particular item is stored appropriately so that it doesn't damage itself or damage other parts of the collection and making sure that it's cataloged so that researchers can find it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the, in the immediate sense, that's a lot of what goes on here day to day. But for me in particular, um, you know, part of my curatorial responsibility for the collection is going out and meeting with community members whose stories haven't been told. And one of the challenges for Northwest Georgia history is that in the absence of the Bandy Center, you know, I, I talk a lot about material reality, that there are objects that are out there that are of significance and they have to exist somewhere. That's their material reality. So are they in a shoebox? Are they under somebody's hmm. bed? Are they in a barn? And so, you know, a lot of it, some people say that being a historian is like being a detective, right? You follow the breadcrumb trail and it's partly that, but then the preservation impulse means that I'm a little bit more like an insurance adjuster. <laughs> so yeah thinking what if it rains what if it floods what if it burns but i think a lot of of the you know my work here at the center is really acquainting people with what they with what we do and getting them to see their place in our work because it's not a question of well, to put it another way, if you're if you live in northwest Georgia, if you exist in northwest Georgia, you're already a part of northwest Georgia history. So it's not a question of whether your story belongs. It's a question of where your story belongs. Mm-hmm. That's a profound cognitive change when people realize that this is not a hall of fame. So you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be well connected. And in fact, pursuing the the rich, the famous and well-connected is not a, an especially great way to do history. Mm-hmm. Um, like when you talk about the carpet industry, for instance, you know, there are a lot of, of leaders in the industry who've done incredible things, but one thing they haven't done is literally made carpet. <laughs> and so when you want to talk to the guys who work in the mills, when yeah. you want to talk to people who've worked in the industry, um, you don't necessarily want a top-down model for that. Mm-hmm. You know, when 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 we want to study school history, well, we want to talk to students and we want to talk to alumni. And so it's there's a lot of human relations and a lot of um, of sort of storytelling and active listening so that people will realize that the things that they value are the things that their community values. And there's a connection between what we do and what somebody might value in their scrapbook or their grandmother's recipe Mm -hmm. box or whatever it might be. And, and ensuring that we can, can preserve those things for the good of the community. (laughs) Well, the name of this is dialogues with creators. And, and our thesis is that create creativity is not just the arts. It's not just found in one area of life. So how would you say that creativity comes into play with what is done at the center? I think creativity is, especially when the, with the center being as young as it is, but I don't think it would be any less true years from now. I think creativity is everywhere in what we do. And I think acknowledging creativity 
in the building of a historical record is a vital step toward avoiding the the naturalization of blind spots in our interpretive hmm. vision because you know, I think that there is one of the things I used to train my students on is that we have to defamiliarize the given. The things we think are given, we can't accept them as mm-hmm. such. And that's especially true when you talk about local history and public history that I think people when people learn about the Bandy Center, I think that people think of it as a natural deposit for old and historic stuff that like mm-hmm. if you were to shake the city of Dalton like a like a mining pan, that all of the historical stuff would just sort of settle down into the Bandy Center. And that's not true. It's not true of archives in general. And that's part of my scholarly perspective as much as it is my professional perspective that archives are artifacts too. We collect artifacts, but the the archives itself is an artifact. And just like Mm -hmm. a bicycle or a carpet machine or whatever it might be, um, this archives is created through human effort and it's sustained through human effort and it reflects the priorities of its creator. And that is that is something that we have to acknowledge and kind of keep in front of us so that I don't mistake what I think of as historic for what might be necessary for historical inquiry in the future. Um, and so there's a measure of creativity that goes into distinguishing the past, which is the bucket of stuff that's happened over time. Versus history, which history is a story I create to interpret things that happened in the past. And I think there's a sleight of hand where those two things get conflated, where I think people think history is the past or it's the study of the past. And that's not really true. History is the study of change over time. And when we when we keep that in a denaturalized position, it requires creativity on our part to think creatively about what is historically significant about this community or this community or this community and how do these things fit together. And that's true for building the collection and it's true for interpreting the collection too. You know, one of the examples that I love to to give and this kind of falls to the level of almost cocktail party conversation But if I were to tell you a story about military history, well, one part of that story at some point down the line would be the MRE, the meal ready Mm -hmm. ticket, right? Well, if I tell you a story about food history, at some point down the line, the MRE would show up again. But the role of an MRE in military history and the role of an MRE in the history of food is a different role. And as we think about where these things fit, there's there's never a time where we put a period on the end of the sentence and we say, this is what this means. Mm-hmm. This is what this is. And to keep that flexibility in mind and to know that interpretation is never a done deal, I think is necessarily a creative project. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we are creating a record of, of community memory. Right. Neat. Um, I, I'm reminded of the work I've, I've read on creativity, that there is divergent creativity and there's convergent or convergent creativity being that divergent means the creation of diverse ideas, things, you know, just 
we, we might call it brainstorming, coming up with ideas, seeing things that haven't been seen before, getting just and and that tends to be the, the idea of creation. But there's this other side called the convergent where it is the discrimination part, if I can use that word. It is the discerning part. It's, right. you know, and is the decision, OK, this has been created, but is this is this really original? Is this really effective is this really does this really work artistically or something like that you know i i write fiction and i can come up with all kinds of crazy stuff but that doesn't mean that it's gonna be readable you know like and so that divergent part where i tell my story in all of its detail and then i come back in the convergent part and so i kind of connect it to to that you know that you've got to have both sides of it so we're coming to the end here and I always like to ask people what they're reading. What are you reading now? So what am time I, to read. <laughs> one of my favorites, I'm actually rereading one of my favorite books from grad school. And it, it kind of goes to your point about creativity too. <clears throat> So one of my favorite scholars for studying the relationship of affect and memory, um, which is to say that's how I express um, studies of things like trauma and nostalgia, that these are intersections of feeling and memory. One of my favorite scholars in that field is a guy named Alan Trachtenberg, and he uh, released a book several years ago called Shades of Hiawatha, uh, Staging Indians and Making Americans. And what really fascinated me about his work is the the exposure of how the identity of a of Native Americanness, if you will, or Indigenous Americanness, has been deployed as a trope in a kind of calculated way to serve at all times to serve the benefit of uh, people who are deploying it to serve power groups. And so he com- he compares and contrasts the kind of shifting of feet where as America is shifting westward or moving westward, we're on a footing where we perceive of indigenous Americans as fundamentally hostile, that these people are savages and we have to take this land from them. And then as we take this land from them, there is a softening and a nostalgia. There's a, a, an affective massaging of memory where we shift from saying that these are the noble forebears and that we have inherited this land from these people. And in particular, he explores that through American creative media. And so one of the examples he draws heavily on is Disney's song of Hiawatha and that whatever, you know, on one hand, we, American media culture has a way of depicting Native Americans as bloodthirsty savages. And on the other hand, we depict them as these kind of obsessively gentle, ecological, uh, progressive. <laughs> so, and yes. the, tr- the truth is both and and more complicated than. Mm-hmm. But the, the point is that. At, at any one point, we're only showing whatever side of the picture benefits us the most. Mm hmm. The problem with that is that you take those media depictions and then you add in time as an ingredient and those media depictions take on a veneer of historical authority so that we accept these things as fact and they become naturalized. You know, one of the the examples I used frequently as a media critic was he talks a lot about the photography of Edward Sheriff Curtis, who was famous for his depiction, his photographic depictions of Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And Curtis's own history, as Trachtenberg points out, I think is is really telling because he starts out 
basically giving his subscribers what they pay for. So his subscribers include Teddy Roosevelt and JP Morgan and all these industrialists. And what they want is a reclamation project. So he goes out and photographs Native Americans basically to say, look, we didn't kill them all, <laughs> which is horrifying and colonial to think that that's what that's about. And that reminds me of uh, we were out west and we went to the Crazy Horse exhibit near Mount Rushmore. I always forget the name of the place. And, you know, if you know anything about that place, it's it's just a total. I, I'm sorry. It's just really a cash thing. Cash oh, yeah. grab because they, you know, they have this nice little museum there and you pay to get in and then you have to pay to get closer to the, the sculpture, which is not even remotely done. <laughs> You can see it as well. You can see it as well from the road as you can from being in the place. Mm-hmm. And I was so annoyed. I was so annoyed by the whole thing because of the money we spent. But but that falls right into, you know, somebody trying to make money off of this this depiction of Native Americans in that museum, you know, it, it, all the pictures are of a certain type. And mm. yeah, I, 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 that's, that's a fascinating, I'll have to uh, remember that. And since I have a transcript of this, I'll, yeah. I'll uh, be able to find the book. Well, you know, well, I want to thank you. I'm sorry. I was just to say there, you know, yeah. there's a relationship I think that's, that's a value to, for creators to consider, which is that mm-hmm. erasure is by definition an act of creation too. And I think that's what yeah. Chris was doing is, you know, he takes a photo of, a Native American and he's trying to project this kind of pristine nostalgic quality. Well, in some cases, for instance, he takes a picture of a person in their home and they have a mantle clock. And so he removes the mantle clock so that he can get a more authentic picture. And the irony is that he's creating this, he's creating a a model of authenticity that is ironically not authentic at all. Right. And Mm -hmm. that, that interplay I think is, is something that you can get to, uh, through material in a way that you can't get to necessarily through and through speaking to somebody. But yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's and I imagine that you could probably follow that thesis through all kinds of things oh, yeah. as it comes to me. Well, I want to thank you for being with us today. It was fascinating. And any of you who are listening, I recommend that you visit uh, the, the Bandy Heritage Center, that you go to their website and that you find out more about it because you will be very glad that you did. And this is an area that the campus and this community and the whole region needs to know a whole lot more about. So thank you for being with us today, Dr. Ware. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.